In his letter to the church long ago, the apostle Peter wrote, always be prepared to give a reason to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within you. Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that lies within you. This is the job of witnesses, to be joyful bearers of a message of hope to a world that needs hope. But before we can really understand that, I think, we need to go back and think more clearly, take in more personally the nature of the tough news for which we need hope, for which we truly need the hope that Jesus brings. And throughout this conversation this morning, I'm going to be reflecting on a simple idea that I think is prevalent in every age that might be summed up aptly by the statement, you only get what you deserve. That's the title for the message this morning. You only get what you deserve, question mark. Let's think about that together today. Some 100 years ago, a perfectly nice young man fell in with some very bad associates. Although the young man had been raised with all of the advantages of instruction in a very, very fine home, one of his friends managed to convince him that an even greater fortune was to be found by helping to rob a bank. The robbery went off almost without a hitch until just as the thieves were leaving the scene of the crime, one of the tellers withdrew a gun from underneath the counter. Remember, this is the Wild West days. These are the olden days. And pulling up the gun, he stretched it out and fired several shots into the uh, gaggle of escaping bank robbers. As fate would have it, Uh, Two of the bullets lodged in the body of the society kid who somehow managed to drag himself to his horse and climb up on it and gallop away down the street. Losing blood quickly now and in terrible pain, the boy barely manages to hang on to the racing mount. Every stab of pain that racks his body reminding him of what a stupid choice he had made, of what a terrible decision he'd made. He thought of his parents. He thought of all of the comforts of home that he had known. What have I done, he moaned. And then as darkness closed in around him, he cried between clenched teeth, it's only getting what I deserve. I'm only getting what I deserve. There must have been something of that sort of remorse in the two figures who trudged out of Eden on that day described in Genesis chapter 3. Only hours before, they had enjoyed society of the highest kind. They had enjoyed the intimate company of God himself. They had walked naked and unashamed with God and with one another. They had had around them a staggering array of comforts and privileges, and then in a single moment of selfish stupidity, they had done something 
whose benefits could not possibly be compared to what they had lost. Any of us who have ever betrayed the confidence of a friend in order to gain popularity with somebody else understand a little bit of this. Any of us who have ever sacrificed a steady relationship in order to attain a glamorous thrill and an indulgent moment of romance, we, we also understand a little bit of this. We understand how stupid you feel when you finally discover that what you have lost actually spoils what you've gained. That the knowledge of all that you've forsaken ruins all that you've taken. For Adam and Eve, the loss of Eden was all the more agonizing still because the future that seemed to stretch out before them couldn't be compared with the past. By trading truth for a lie, the lie of the servant, they brought upon themselves and upon the entire creation, in a sense, a terrible reversal. The creation that had been characterized up to this point in the story by nothing but order and harmony now gets turned on its head and becomes a wilderness. The garden becomes a jungle or a wilderness. Look again at the story with me, if you would. And look at the effects of sin described in this narrative. Where once human beings had exercised a benevolent, symbiotic rapport with the creatures of the earth. That's the picture we get in Genesis 2. Now, human beings have a relationship with the creatures symbolized here by the serpent that is antagonistic, striking aggressively at one another. Where once woman and man had had this helpmate relationship, absolute equal footing, partners in the work of developing the creation. Now the terrible effect of sin is that human beings are blaming each other. Uh, There's a hierarchical relationship between man and woman now described as the effect of sin in their lives. Women being ruled by men, even being given names as formerly Adam had only given names to animals. Where the creation of people had been described before as very good, a joyous act of God, now the creation of new, new human life, as symbolized by childbirth, will be one marked by what? Pain, longing. A joyful act now, painful, and marked by longing. Or once human beings had enjoyed the ripe abundance of the earth, now human beings must eke out survival in painstaking labor. Paradise. Paradise lost. You see? You see the big picture here? It's important to remember that Genesis is not trying to give us here a scientific explanation for the origin of labor pains. Don't want to hear anybody asking me about that in line after church today. (laughs) It's not trying to give us an explanation for the locomotion pattern of snakes either. It's painting a much bigger picture for us. 
a much more important picture for us. Genesis is trying to tell us why we have so many problems besetting our environment and the relationship between the sexes and family life and even the workplace. Genesis is trying to tell us that when human beings choose their own way against God's way, there's painful consequence. It's a terrible, stupid mistake. It hurts us to do the very thing which we think is going to get us more. And it also hurts God. It profoundly hurts God. Some of us have a difficult time understanding that last part. I think that one of the primary reasons why many non-disciples have not yet come into a life with God in Jesus Christ is that they do not understand the heart of God fully. They don't understand the aching, agonized, racking pain of God over the brokenness of the relationship between us. I think even those of us who have been around church for a long time find it hard to imagine a God who feels such passion for us over our choices as well. And so in the face of some crisis that we undergo or some loss that we experience, sometimes brought about upon by misguided human choice or decision, sometimes brought on by our own choices and decisions, even in the midst of those kinds of experiences that are the natural outcome of choices past, some of us are unable to think like that man on the horse with the bullets in his body, Lord, I know I'm only getting what I deserve. We just don't go there, many of us. Instead, we think angrily to ourselves, I've been a good person, so I make a few mistakes now and then. I'm only human, but I'm no worse than anyone else, so why do I have to deal with these problems in my life? Why don't I get what I deserve? I cannot tell you as a pastor how often I hear this. And in fact, I've said it myself. I'm not pointing fingers or blaming. But one of the most consistent statements I hear from the lips of people in moments of crisis of any kind are these two words. Why me? Why me? Why not you? The world's broken. The creation is groaning. <laughs> Of course these things will happen. And any of us are subject to them. But underneath the surface of the why me statement is this must deeper assumption that we ought to only get what we deserve. Perhaps that's the second line of thinking that ran through Adam and Eve as they walked out of Eden. Why is God so hard on us? I mean, why? Is he so tough on us? Why us? Why this? Why don't we get what we deserve? Many years ago, R.C. Sproul told the story that helps to address this particular question, or at least to illuminate it for us. 
During his first semester of college teaching, Professor Sproul explained to his class of 250 freshmen that his course required the submission of just three short papers. Lots of students are hearing this kind of assignment this time of year. And because this was not a particularly tough set of requirements for a college-level class, Professor Sproul explained to his class of 250 freshmen that, that this requirement came with deadlines. That at the end of each of the next three months, there was going to be a deadline when they would have to pass in their paper. And he expected those papers on his desk 12 noon, by the due date, no exceptions. That was his arrangement. Well, September the 30th rolled around. And 225 of his 250 students submitted their papers, very dutifully. The other 25, in that posture of abject humility native to college freshmen... came to Dr. Sproul and begged for an extension. They said, Dr. Sproul, we know that you told us you'd give us an F if we didn't get the paper in by the deadline, but we're so overwhelmed. We're new to this school. Cut us some slack, please. It will never happen again. And Dr. Sproul looked at them with compassion and said, okay. Turn it in tomorrow. Turn it in tomorrow. But remember the deadline next time. October the 30th rolled around. And so did 200 papers this time. Now Sproul had 50 students on his doorstep pleading pleading for grace, or was it mercy? What's the difference between grace or mercy? Grace is getting a good you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting a bad you do deserve. And they were asking for both grace and mercy. And this time, Dr. Sproul had a little tougher time with his answer. They said to him, Professor, we didn't plan out our time properly. We confess that it's midterm. We had so many assignments due, a chorus of other similar reasons, most of which a lot of us have used. I know I've used more than a few. But being a soft-hearted man, ultimately, Sproul relents again. He underlines, this is the last time. This is the last time. So what do you think happened when November the 30th rolled around? There are a hundred kids now, 25, 50 now, a hundred kids now sauntering into the classroom without a paper in their hands, or I might add, without even a trace of worry on their faces. When Dr. Sproul asks for their assignments, they say to him, no problem, prof, we'll have them in a couple of days. What do you think, what do you think the response of the 100 was when their teacher opened his black grading book and wrote down the letter F 
next to every single one of those names, what do you think their response was? Outrage! Absolute outrage. That's not fair, they said. That's just not fair. You gave us an extension all those other times. That's just not fair. Oh, it's not fair, said Dr. Sprawl. It's not fair. And he looked at the leader of the, of the rabble, a guy named Johnson, and he says, Johnson, is, is it fairness you want? Yes! And so Dr. Sproul said, well, Johnson, as I recall, you didn't have your paper in back in October either on time. I think I'm going to give you an F for that one also. And oh, September, F. And then he turned to the class and he said, how many of the rest of you truly want justice? If we could get it, if we could arrange a world that would only give us exactly what we deserved, if we could arrange a world of perfect justice, would that be, would that be a good thing? Is it possible that we have experienced God's grace and mercy, his kindness and his provision so regularly for so very long that we have stopped even valuing it? Have we become so accustomed to his grace and mercy that when he allows us to experience any loss or hardship even ones where we may be directly or indirectly responsible, we cry out, that's not fair. Why me? That's not fair. That's not what I deserve. Perhaps that feeling ran through the hearts of Adam and Eve on the road out of Eden as well. And yet, as Walter Brueggemann points out so aptly, the scandal of that moment in Genesis 3 is not that they were punished. The scandal is God allowed them to live when he had told them from the start that the wages of sin, of choosing against me, is death. The idea that we only get what we deserve or ought to is a very cruel deception. It's a cruel lie and deception. In this life that we have, God very rarely does it. (laughs) He very rarely, very rarely gives us the justice for which we sometimes clamor. And this, this is a major part of the good news to which followers of Jesus are called to bear a joyful witness. The God we know through Jesus Christ is better than that. He's better than justice. The God we meet, and I think, frankly, we only meet him through Jesus Christ. We will not find 
through the prophet Muhammad, the Buddha, Confucius, so many of the other religious figures of our day. We will not find a description of this kind of God any other place than in Jesus. But the one that we meet through Jesus is the one who welcomes those lazy workers who show up at the vineyard 10 minutes before closing time when they were supposed to be there first thing in the morning and greets them not with the boot from employment that their recalcitrance and laziness deserves, but rather pays them a full day's wages. This is the heart of God, the heart of God of enormous grace, enormous grace and mercy. The God that Jesus shows us is the God like the Father who receives the prodigal son home, not with a fearful scolding or with a requirement that he work off all of the money that he's taken and wasted for the family or make him feel groveling and guilty as he crawls his way back home. The God that we meet in Jesus Christ is like that father that embraces the son and puts a ring on his finger and slices off a slab of the best fatted calf meat and makes the boy a full son again. This is the God of the universe. The God we meet through Jesus Christ is the one who greets the deathbed confession of a thief on the cross, not with the skeptical roll of the eyes it deserves. I mean, come on, what else do you have to reach out for when you're on a cross, my gosh? God doesn't greet that with a skeptical, where have you been the whole of your life? But with the statement, today you will be with me in paradise. My friends, the God we meet in Jesus Christ is the one who took the original spoiled brats of Eden and gave them Not what they deserved, but what they needed most to finally come to their senses and long for him, find a way home. Are you sensing the pattern here? The Christ we meet on the cross shows us the God who meets us in this life more often than not, not with justice, but with wild, impassioned, illogical grace and mercy. What if you and I were bearers of that likeness to the world? What if you and I showed the world, not the face of sphincter-clenched Phariseeism or rigid ritualism or empty institutionalism, but what if we showed them the heart of God in our dealings with them? 
What if we demonstrated a love and a generosity and a forgiveness towards other people because we were so inspired by the reality that God hasn't given us what we deserve, but so much good that we didn't? What if we could be these kinds of joyful witnesses to people? Would it make a difference? There is, however, a second dimension to this message to which we bear witness that is also important to appreciate. And it's an idea that is best illustrated by reminding you of that young bank robber we met at the beginning of the message who was clinging to the back of that horse. You remember him? His unconsciousness closed upon him. According to the famous story, a passing stranger was witness to the robbery itself and he saw the injured boy riding off hell-bent for leather on that horse and knowing that the wounded young man was almost certain to fall off the horse and break his neck and it would be over the man got on his horse himself he rode after him he overtook the other horse he reached around grabbed hold of the boy pulled him onto his horse and took him home and nursed him back to health so that he could have another chance to do it differently this time. But the boy squandered the chance. He went from pretty bad to very worse. And one day, he found himself standing before a judge in a courtroom. And it was the judge's job to sentence this man for the murder he had committed in a barroom brawl. When the boy was ushered, or when the judge came into the courtroom and the boy looked up, his jaw just dropped. And a smile came over his face. Because the boy saw in the face of the man in the robes simply the older version of the very same guy that had pulled him off that horse and nursed him back to health so long ago. I've got it made, he thought to himself. How incredibly surprised he was when the sentence that was uttered from the bench was the maximum allowable. How can you do this to me? The plaintiff cried out. You helped me before. Why can't you do it again? It's not fair, he said. And the man in the robes replied, I'm sorry you still don't understand. Today, I am your judge. How I wish you'd responded to the grace and mercy you received during all those years when I was so ready to be your Savior. Our God is the Savior. He is the one who comes in grace to do us good when we deserve much less But Jesus says also that there will come a day when the master returns home and asks to know what his servants have been doing with the talents that he entrusted to them. There will come a day when he comes back 
to divide the sheep from the goats on the basis of what they have done to actually respond to the needs of the least of his brothers and sisters. There will come a day, says Jesus, when God will return and he will separate the wheat and the weeds on the basis of their fruitfulness. As we walk forth from this place out into that wilderness beyond, as we go out, as each of us must, as each of us are called to, to work until God brings all of the creation back into unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ, let's treat every person we meet with that joyful grace and mercy that he's shown to us thus far. Let's resolve to greet every hardship that we encounter out there with that sense of thankful peace that comes from knowing that in this life, in spite of how hard it gets at times, we're still not getting everything we deserve. Let's meet every opportunity to discard the lies of this world and live by the truth that God gives us in the power of that knowledge that in this life we've not gotten what we deserve And with that humble self-discipline that comes also from knowing that in the next life, we just may get what we deserve. Please pray with me. Lord, you know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. So meet us wherever we may be on our spiritual journey today and lead us out of the lies we may be living into the truth, which is your kingdom's way. Thank you for the inestimable mercy, the outreaching love by which you welcome any sinner, any sincere heart into your eternal family. Keep us from ever taking that love for granted and send us forth to be joyful witnesses to your amazing grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.